Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rajiv Mooney from Toronto, Canada, where he uh, serves on faculty at the University of Toronto, and we discuss his favorite topic, pneumatic retinopexy, and the pivot trial, of which he was the primary investigator and has gotten a lot of press looking at pneumatic retinopexy versus primary vitrectomy for retinal detachment. We talk about that study, the things that led to doing that study, and what techniques and pearls you can uh, employ when trying to do pneumatic retinopexy in patients who may not be ideal candidates. Remember that you can find a list of financial disclosures in the episode description, and there are also links to claim CME credits in the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Simply click on the link, and that will take you to the AOEO website, and there will be instructions on how to claim your CME, generally about a half credit per episode. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Rajiv Mooney. Dr. Mooney is at St. Michael's Hospital, part assistant professor at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. Dr. Mooney, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jay. It's nice, uh, nice to be on your podcast. We always start with the same question for our guests. Why did you become an ophthalmologist, and why then a retina specialist? Uh, you know, I, I went to a medical school that gave us a lot of elective time that uh, allowed us to try many different uh, specialties, and I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do something surgical, uh, and so I, I almost tried uh, every surgical specialty. And uh, I was really impressed with in ophthalmology how, you know, the surgery had such great outcomes for patients, you know, with the initial exposure to cataract surgery and, you know, seeing the big impact that you could have. And it just appealed to me uh, a lot more than, you know, for example, some of the other surgical fields like uh, neurosurgery or, you know, where the outcomes are not so great. And, um, you know, I, I just liked being able to do surgery where, you know, you could have see that immediate impact uh, for patients. And, and then, you know, once I got into uh, ophthalmology, you know, for retina, I, I just liked the uh, the fact that you know, there was a lot of different types of surgeries that we did and, and kind of that, you know, you dealt with all the problems that, you know, you would be, you know, the buck kind of stops with the retinal surgeon. So, you know, all the complications and the difficult cases, you know, would come to you and you would get to manage them surgically, which, uh, which really appealed to me. And one of my Interestingly, you know, since we're going to be talking about pneumatics, probably is that uh, at the University of Toronto, uh, I had some mentors that used to do pneumatic retinopexy, and I was able to get involved very early on. So, like, you know, in my second year of residency, I started uh, one of my uh, mentors, Dr. Peter Curtis, who um, uh, who I, I also ended up doing some fellowship time with, showed me how to do this treatment on on a patient as a resident. You know, imagine being able to take a retinal detachment and 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 fix it almost independently was really amazing after spending all those days in the resident clinic seeing, you know, iritis and dry eyes. And, and uh, that really also kind of directed me into the field. So, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit about why I chose retina. So not to take the obvious pun, but we're going to pivot to talking about the pivot study and right. pneumatic retinopexy. So let's give, before we get into the study, Give the, the people who are listening who haven't heard about the study the background. Why did you choose to conduct the study? How was this study designed? And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about the results. Yeah. So, you know, in Canada, we're, we're lucky in some ways that uh, we can do trials like this because things are very centralized. 
So for retinal surgery in Toronto, there's you know, three major hospitals and all the retinal surgeons operate at three sites. And, you know, there's, there isn't a lot of surgery outside the hospital. So, you know, basically all the retinal detachments come in, you know, when you're on call, you can see a very large volume of retinal detachments. Sometimes, you know, if we're, we have something called citywide call where we cover the whole city, you know, you could have 40 or 50 retinal detachments coming in in a week. And so, you know, this was an opportunity for us to uh, to investigate this. Like we, we had the capacity to do a trial like this because of that large uh, patient volume. And then uh, in terms of how we fix detachments, you know, in uh, Toronto, there uh, for several years before that, we were doing a lot of pneumatic retinopexy, but there's many centers outside of Toronto that don't do any pneumatic retinopexy at, at several of the other universities. And so, you know, there's, there's always that question in the back of your mind, you know, is this really what's best for the patient? You know, what, what gives patients the best functional outcomes? And, and you know, after a few years of practice, um, I think, you know, we, the study started two years into, into my practice. And, you know, having done a lot of uh, pneumatics and a lot of vitrectomies and buckles and everything, the, the question was, you know, what really is the best for the patient? And so that was what made us interested in, in pursuing this, uh, this clinical trial. And it, it, is, it was a single center study at um, St. Michael's Hospital where we have six retinal surgeons. So there's about 10 to 12 surgeons in Toronto altogether. And so it's a single center study, but we each, you know, all six of the retinal surgeons have their own practice. And so we all do things very differently um, based on where we've been trained. And so it, uh, it involved the majority of retinal surgeons uh, in, in the city, basically. And so uh, it was a randomized trial and patients who uh, had retinal breaks within one clock hour of detached retina, and also uh, patients could have any number of breaks or lattice degeneration uh, at any location in attached retina. And so we wanted to make the results more generalizable to a larger proportion of patients than the original pneumatic retinopexy study. In the original pneumatic retinopexy study, which was done by, uh, you know, and, and this is a good opportunity to, to pay respects to Dr. Paul Ternambi, who, you know, who we all know recently passed away. Uh, and he was a, a giant in, in the field of retinal detachment surgery. And, you know, he conducted that, uh, that clinical trial, the pneumatic retinopexy trial, and uh, showed that uh, pneumatics had relatively good outcomes compared to scleral buckle uh, surgery. But the, the thing about that trial was that it only applied to patients who had breaks within one clock hour. Uh, and they really couldn't have had any other significant pathology. So as we know, a lot of patients will have some lattice inferiorly or they'll have a break in attached retina somewhere. And, and we didn't feel that that really compromised our success rate uh, just from our anecdotal experience. And so we felt that uh, we should build on, on uh, Paul Ternambi's work uh, and expand to more detachments uh, so that a larger proportion of your patients would be uh, eligible. So we allowed patients to have any number of breaks in attached retina, any extent of lattice, they could have 360 lattice. As long as the breaks in detached retina were in the superior eight clock hours and all within one clock hour uh, of each other. So, uh, so those were the patients we included in the trial. They, when they came in, we randomized them after they consented uh, to vitrectomy uh, versus pneumatic. And we were very uh, cognizant of the fact that we didn't want the outcomes to be biased by the timing of surgery or of the procedure. Because, you know, as you know, you can do pneumatic uh, right away in your, in your office uh, within a, an hour or two. 
whereas with vitrectomy, it has to be scheduled. And so it took a lot of effort from, from all of us to, to do these surgeries right away. So, you know, there was a lot of operating at night. Um, there was, uh, you know, bumping patients for, for the next day. Uh, but basically, the macula on patients were done within eight hours on average, and the macula uh, off patients were done within about 19 hours. So basically, almost everyone had surgery in less than a day uh, in the vitrectomy group. And so we wanted to give them the best opportunity to have that the timing to be similar uh, to, to the pneumatic uh, group. And um, yeah, so um, that's kind of was included in the trial and and, the, and how we, we randomized them. The, the one other thing I'll say is we, we wanted to, uh, we block randomized patients. So we wanted an equal number of MAC on and MAC off patients. So you can imagine an imbalance in the, in the number of MAC offs, for example, could totally change the results. So we really felt that it was important to have an equal number of MAC on and MAC offs in each, in each group. And we can talk a little bit about a couple of questions that came up about the study design. Excellent, excellent study design. Oh, just summarize quickly res results of the study. You know, not to, to steal your thunder, but I think people were very impressed by the success rate of pneumatic retinopexy compared to vitrectomy as a primary procedure. Um, any sort of other big takeaways in terms of secondary outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important outcome in in the whole study is is not the vision. Uh, or the, I mean, vision is always important and, and the primary anatomical reattachment is important. But to me, the, the distortion results are what was most intriguing. We found that using a, an objective quantitative tool to measure distortion, which we all know, like our patients have surgery and we look in and it looks great and we tell them how good it is. And mo a lot of patients complain though, right? They complain that things look smaller, they look farther away. Uh, that they're distorted. And, you know, you could have a patient that's 20-25 that has to close that eye to read because of the, of the metamorphopsia or the anisoconia. So um, we included uh, this distortion measurement in the trial and found that uh, there was a significant difference in um, the, the, the extent of the distortion uh, and also the proportion of patients who had distortion. So uh, it was about 56 or 57% of the vitrectomy group uh, patients had distortion versus about 35% in the pneumatic group. And then if you looked at the severity of that uh, metamorphopsia, it was almost twice as worse in the vitrectomy group. And that opened up a whole other you know, area of research that we've been exploring. And, and to me, that says a lot because you know, the vision is multifactorial. It could be the impact of cataract. It could be the impact of the timing when you got to surgery, uh, how long the patient was macula off, and, and so forth. Mind you, in a randomized trial, you, you have a good chance of, you know, addressing a lot of those concerns. But um, the distortion results, to me, tells me that there's an intrinsic difference in how the retina is reattached in these two procedures. And that, to me, it was very mm. interesting because it, it, it tells us that you know, we have an opportunity not only to pick a procedure that can optimize functional outcomes other than vision, but also we can look potentially at vitrectomy surgery itself and see how we can minimize uh, those, the, you know, the, the distortion that you do get. And, and that's what we're kind of working on in the futures. So and that's, and that's really one of the interesting things that, that has come out of this. And the original pneumatic retinopexy trial had results that were interesting that way too, where they compared kind of pneumatic to, to buckle in that trial and the patients who had a pneumatic with a single procedure 
had better vision than the patients who had a buckle. Once you and, and again, they're the correct for refractive error, things like that. And so there's been this discussion about the mechanism. And a buckle, actually, you could argue, is less the, the the method of drainage in a buckle, especially if there's external drainage, is quote unquote maybe not as forceful as draining internally, either via the brake or retinotomy or perfluoron, whatever way you drive fluid air exchange. But it's still interesting to think about how much the RPE pump influences things and maybe weighting things towards the RPE pump, getting rid of that fluid may be helpful from a visual acuity standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I don't know uh, in the, I have to go back to the pneumatic retina epilepsy trial to see what proportion of patients had drainage uh, buckles versus non-drainage. Um, that would be interesting to look at. But I, I agree. I think that uh, what we're, Deter- what we've determined now is that, um, uh, you know, and it's consistent with the two trials, is that it, it seems that uh, allowing the, uh, you know, closing the brake and allowing the fluid to reabsorb on its own naturally likely gives you a better uh, functional outcome in the end. And I, I think that that, you know, uh, you know, potentially comes from the uh, pneumatic retinopexy trial and the PIVOT trial. Uh, but you make a really good point that, you know, in in buckles, usually you're letting the RP reabsorb the fluid as well. But I guess it would be good to know what proportion of patients had drainage uh, performed versus not. Um, mm-hmm. and, there could, and, there could be, and there could be other reasons for what, uh, you know, why the vision was better. Like, so there were more cataracts in the buckle group in the pneumatic retinopexy trial. You know, again, the time to surgery, like they may not have done the buckles as quickly as uh, as the pneumatics. Uh, so there's a number of factors that could have come to play, but there was pretty convincing evidence that the macula off patients did better with buckle uh, compared to vitrectomies. Let's kind of talk about the what's resulted. You become, you're already obviously a very well-known surgeon. You become almost a mini celebrity, I feel, after this study. It was so, I mean, everyone's been talking about it. Everyone's in, it's the Academy, SRS, everyone wants to hear about the study. What are kind of the most common questions if people walk up to you in a meeting or someone you don't know says, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so, what are kind of the most common questions you get about pneumatic retinopexies? You know, I think that people who do pneumatic retinopexy like it. And, and, and the reason we do it is because if you think about your patient in the clinic who has a retinal tear and you laser the tear and they come back for follow-up and it's like nothing ever happened. They're happy. And, you know, that's, we, we experience that with pneumatic retinopexy. It's kind of like you're using the bubble to go back in time to when it was just a tear and you laser the tear and those patients do well. And it's, it's like an untouched eye and, and they're happier. And I think the one thing I, I get is like people who do pneumatics who come up to me and say, you know, I, I completely agree with the findings of the study that, you know, pe- people seem to have better functional outcomes. But the other group that has never done pneumatics, um, uh, you know, often they, you know, they're concerned about some of the things. So, uh, you know, they, if you haven't done a lot of them, I think it's hard to understand like how you can inject such a large volume of gas without, um, you know, by just by doing an AC tap or, you know, will the patient's position or not position, will they be compliant? And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times right. people feel that, oh, you know, in, in my patient population, I don't think people are going to, to do this. But, you know, the reality, like in Toronto, we have a very multicultural city. It's like any other big city. Um, it, it really has to do a lot with how you explain the positioning to the patient. So uh, I think that, you know, one aspect that I get is, is that around the positioning. And, and the second, most of the questions I get are around the procedure, like how do you optimize the size of the gas bubble and mm-hmm. you do laser or cryo or like when do you give up? And if it 
doesn't work? Like, you know, are there any nuances to the vitrectomy? And mm. I, I find that the majority of people uh, now that it's gotten out there, that the data is out there, want to learn how to do it and are kind of, uh, you know, trying to figure out um, the nuances to, to get those outcomes. You know, the, the 80% outcomes, you know, and I should say are, you know, we're talking about fellows and, and surgeons that have, you know, are doing thousands of these procedures. And, um, you know, most of our fellows uh, do, you know, several hundred, 300, 400. And, you know, in the first six months of their fellowship, they're probably doing 100, 100 pneumatics, 150 pneumatics. So, you know, they literally get swamped with these from the beginning and, and they learn quickly how to do them. And, and there's no substitute for that. You know, as you, you know, training fellows is, uh, there's nothing like volume, right? And so, um, uh, I think that if you haven't had, the, if you trained at a center that didn't do a lot of pneumatics, that you kind of have to learn on your own. And so I think there's a, a strategy to doing that, I think. And, and uh, what I tell people is, you know, pick easy cases. So first of all, if you've never done a pneumatic, um, there's there's one thing we can agree. Uh, when you talk about vitrectomy, if you have a, you know, six or seven clock hour temporal VRT, uh, there's nothing better than doing a vitrectomy. And if you have a young patient with a uh, inferior retinal detachment with a single break at six o'clock, there's probably nothing better than a primary buckle. And for me, there's, there's certain cases where really you should only be doing a pneumatic retinopexy as mm. the first line treatment. And those would be cases where you have no other pathology, you have a superior retinal detachment with a single break or a few little breaks close together at 11 o'clock or one o'clock or 12 o'clock. Uh, and, or even if they're Mac on or Mac off, it doesn't matter, but, and, and the rest of their retina looks good. There's no vitreous hemorrhage. So pick a case like that. And those are the cases that should be having this procedure as, as, and assuming you have a, a reasonable patient who's, you know, who's, who's uh, interested in, in having the procedure done. So, um, and if, when you do that, if you pick that right patient, I think the success rate is going to be very high, like probably closer to 90% uh, in that very select population of patients. And, and I think it's important to do them uh, in patients that are where it's likely to work, especially early on. And, you know, these more uh, extensive cases, like what we do here now, you know, it being our primary way of treating retinal detachments, um, you know, now we do all kinds of different things where we do second gas bubbles and different types of positioning and steamrolling them in different ways. But I think the initial case is pick an easy case. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is don't be afraid to uh, get a large AC tap. So uh, it's very important to try to express as much fluid as you can out from the anterior chamber. And this includes aqueous, but also some liquefied vitreous that, uh, or, you know, Schlaren that comes forward. And, um, Usually we take out around 0.3 or 0.4 cc's of fluid uh, by putting uh, some pressure at the limbus with the plunger uh, and then using a 30 gauge needle on a TB syringe uh, inferiorly over iris will remove, you know, as much fluid as we possibly can. But it's quite, you know, it's quite uncomfortable for, for someone who doesn't do AC taps in that way. Like you're really applying a lot of pressure and getting out as much fluid as you can in the chamber is collapsed when you're done and the eye itself may be collapsed. And so that's something that you have to get used to. Uh, then uh, what we do is we add 0.3 cc to what we took out. So if we took out 0.3, you'll inject 0.6. If we took out 0.5, we'll inject 0.8, uh, a, a pure SF6 gas. Um, and 
when you inject the gas, you want to basically insert the needle through the pars plana about halfway in and then pull back so the tip is barely in and then inject it fairly uh, rapidly. And you always want to inject superiorly so that you don't get fish eggs. If you inject inferiorly, you'll just release uh, several fish eggs. And uh, you, you're aiming to get a single large uh, gas bubble. Um, and, and I think that, that those are kind of the keys. Like get a large AC cap, uh, get a single large gas bubble in a patient who's a great candidate. Uh, and then, you know, we can also talk about laser versus cryo. There's different things like, you know, you can, if you have a small pseudophagic retinal break at 12 o'clock, that's going to be hard to see the next day, then you can treat with cryopexy. The other option, if you don't have cryo in your clinic, is where the retinal break is. You can actually, um, anterior to that, mark the aura serrata, uh, where, so that you can find the break the next day. And very rarely, I've also been able to, you know, using a high-powered laser, you can steer the edges of the break. But I, that's something that mm. I would recommend later once you've gotten used to uh, doing this. But, but, you know, marking the aura or doing cryo is for small breaks. For larger horseshoe tears, I wouldn't uh, do cryotherapy. I would recommend laser uh, the day after, or the two days after. Um, but, uh, yeah, those are some of the pearls. And, you know, the laser is the challenging part. Like, anyone can inject the gas and do the AC tap, I feel. But what takes the fellows the, the longer to get used to is lasering, lasering through, gas. through the gas yeah. and all yeah. that. But it's amazing. After three or four or five months of this, like, they're, they're really good at it. Um, and so... Um, I think that that takes some some practice um, and, you know, knowing like how to you know, turn the patient's head to move the bubble out of the way. Or I prefer to actually go right, make sure that the whole bubble is covering the pupil and, and the whole area that I'm lasering. So I'm actually lasering through the bubble uh, because you get a minified view. And um, in a pseudophagic patient, you can just get them to look straight up to the ceiling and the whole bubble covers the pupil. And you actually get this panoramic view of the retina where you can actually almost four or five clock hours at a time and, and laser it so but that just comes with experience but i think that if you pick easy early on and you use some of these techniques that you can really have a very high success rate and you know and once you've done a few of those then you'll be you know more uh, adventurous and, and try to do some some more complex ones so let's talk about if you do a pneumatic and it doesn't work let's get more into that the vitrectomy part of it so one of the things i hear people say is well, well it's you know, in the pneumatic, it's it, it's fine, but if it doesn't work and you have to do a vitrectomy, now you have this gas bubble. I have problems getting the gas bubble out. Sometimes I see the gas goes under the retina, and this made this situation more complicated. I mean, some of this obviously is case selection and picking appropriate cases for pneumatics, not picking cases with very large breaks and avoiding fish eggs. But any tips for like managing? Just, let's say it's a routine pneumatic, it just doesn't work. You're going for a vitrectomy, managing the gas, getting rid of the gas, and kind of moving forward with the case without having issues with lens feathering or other things. Yes, exactly. So this is something you learned the hard way, basically. When uh, I remember in my first uh, year of practice, I had uh, some failed pneumatics, and I told them uh, to, you know, stay face down because they're phagic. And the key is that you literally have to tell the patient to stay face down from now until you enter the OR, and until I see you in the operating room, stay face down. Because sometimes what happens is the patient will. Uh, be in the pre-op area and they're lying on their back getting their IV in and, and whatever. And uh, while they're lying on their back, you know, that's, it's been an hour and the, the, with the bubble against the lens for an hour uh, does cause, does compromise it. And so then you start your vitrectomy and within 
10 minutes, you, your view's gone because you can't see well anymore. And so um, it's very important in fake patients to tell them to be face down right until the second that you're about to start the surgery almost. And so uh, and if you do it that way, uh, it's very extremely rare that you would lose the view during the surgery. Um, the other thing is that um, when you go in, so there's different ways to get the gas bubble out. Um, in the pseudophagic patients, no issue, obviously. But in the phagic patient, um, sometimes just by when you put in the trocars, the gas will come out. But often it doesn't uh, because there's form, you know, there's vitreous around uh, around there. And uh, what I like to do is I kind of have the eye in primary position as you normally do, and I put the vitrector right into the bubble. And basically, I know that as long as I see the bubble and I see my cutter uh, in the bubble, that I won't touch the lens because before I touch the lens, the, bu the bubble's going to go away, right? And so uh, what I'm doing is I'm basically cutting within the bubble uh, and seeing it get smaller and smaller and I'm adjusting the position of my cutter uh, so it's in the center of the, what gas is left. And then the last few little drops, uh, you know, little small bubbles I'll probably leave. Uh, but that uh, important thing is to get the gas out right away. And it brings another important topic is I, I generally try to avoid doing a bit buckle in a failed pneumatic for that reason, because if I'm going to do an encircling band, uh, you know, and you leave the gas in there while you're doing the encircling band, even in that 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, that uh, you could lose some of the view uh, from, the uh, from the lens in a fakic patient. So in a pseudo-fakic patient, you know, sometimes it's not an issue, but in a fakic patient, I'll often, uh, you know, prefer to do a primary vitrectomy for that reason. Um, so that's one of the things. Um, the other thing is uh, when you're doing a vitrectomy following a pneumatic, you know, the shaving of the purple vitreous, I feel, is very important. You do get some, like, kind of compression of the purple vitreous. And so not to the extent that it's, you know, stimulating PVR or anything like that, but I think uh, I do a careful shave 360 with pleural depression uh, with my fellow or if you're using a chandelier. Um, uh, to to remove as much vitreous as possible. And the other thing, which I think is probably the most important thing that people get in trouble with pneumatics, because, you know, the, the trials, when you do the trial that's under ideal scenarios, you know, you're doing, if it fails, you're doing surgeries within a day or two. Uh, and the outcomes, you know, we know now from two trials, if you have a failed pneumatic, uh, the outcomes are good, visual acuity is similar, there's no higher rate of PVR, there's, there's no real issue. But the problem that can happen is that uh, a lot of times if your OR day is on uh, you know, Thursday and it's a Friday and the patient have, has a failed pneumatic, you know, waiting until next Thursday till you have OR time is not a good idea. Uh, mm -hmm. so you have a failed pneumatic. Not a procedure of convenience. It's not a, exactly. When you have a failed pneumatic, you have to be willing to and ready to act within a day or two, in my opinion. So I don't think the conventional one week for a MACOF RD applies once you put the bubble in. And, and so you should uh, be prepared that if it fails, that you're, you're ready to act or one of your colleagues can take the case and, and do surgery. So Because yeah. I, I think the, the, the nightmares that I've seen, like... Uh, following pneumatic is, is that when you've waited too long in, in the setting of a bubble and you've done a laser or two or right. cryo and, and then you've waited too long. 
I think it's, you know, we used to talk about this in fellowship and it's almost like, and this is true, not just the pneumatics, but this is true of a buckle or a vit. It's kind of like, and this comes with experience. It's knowing when something is working and when knowing something isn't working and knowing when you're trying to, you want it to work, but it's not like you're trying to tell yourself it's working. But it's not. And you got to, some of it is just unconscious or subconscious. Sometimes it's conscious, but you got to kind of swallow your ego sometimes and say, this isn't actually working. And sometimes that's where taking a picture, showing it to a colleague, discussing the case with somebody to get a, a, a fresh perspective on it. You know, because I think it goes both ways. Sometimes we would do pneumatics as fellows or fellows do a pneumatic and they get very freaked out by residual fluid, but there's no open right. breaks, right? So that does not need to go to surgery. On the other hand, if you have, they, if you see fluid and you're hoping kind of that it's residual fluid, but it's communicating from a break and you sit on it, that's not good either. So it, it's kind of like finding that nuance. You have to have a good exam and a good sense of where the fluid is going, but also, um, you know, kind of just a good assessment of the situation to know it's the same of anything, though. It's the same as if you had a detachment under oil or fluid under oil. Is this new fluid after a vitrectomy or is this fluid that's extending from somewhere that needs to be addressed? And how soon does it need to be addressed? These are all experience things. Exactly. And I, you, you brought up a really great point because what you've identified in terms of the, uh, the residual fluid, that is the most common um, reason to think that the pneumatic has failed. So a lot of people who are new with pneumatics will, you know, you'll have that superior bolus RD, you'll put the gas bubble in, and the next day there's inferior fluid, infronasal and infrotemporal. And that's great. That's what you want to see the first day um, because uh, you, the fluid does get displaced. And, you know, if, even on day two, if you see that, you shouldn't automatically assume. And, and I think you highlighted exactly what you need to do is a very careful depressed exam and you know a lot of i'm sure your fellows uh, and my fellows it's the same thing like if you're not if you know that the patient's going to a vitrectomy uh, from the beginning you're not going to sit there for 10 minutes and and depress the nasal fornix right so um a lot of uh, times uh you know our, some fellows may not be used to that but if you're doing pneumatic retinopexy every time you want to have a, a good look and i think that what you brought up was a good point that if you have residual fluid, there's one key question. Is the fluid getting better? Is it getting worse or is it staying the same? If it's getting worse, it's probably not working and you need to change course. If it's getting better or staying the same, like you should likely continue for some time trying to make the pneumatic work. And so uh, that's one thing. And there's other little kind of hints as to for displaced fluid, like sometimes displaced fluid doesn't go all the way up to the aura. Whereas when you have a break associated with fluid, it'll go up right to the aura. Whereas if you have that loculated interior fluid in, in like a circular area, but then if you look anterior to that fluid, there's some attached uh, retina uh, before the aura, then you know that, oh, this is probably coming uh, from, uh, from displacement rather than uh, from a new break. So those are things you learn over time. But uh, I think you're right. Once you know that it's communicating with an open break, that the fluid's getting worse, uh, then it's time to act and, and, uh, and move forward. So, so uh, my, la my last question for you, and I'm curious on your perspective as somebody who is from Canada, practices in Canada, trained in the U.S., and kind of knows the cultural differences. So I, I've heard different arguments. Obviously, pneumatics are regional in the United States, just like they are in many places. There are places in the U.S. pneumatics are done extensively and fellowships do extensively, and some that it's never done culturally in certain parts of the country. Um, for example, I'll tell you in South Florida, for example, we don't see that many pneumatics. Um, 
And so my question for you, there's been various theories proposed for why there's this huge difference between Canada and the U.S. Now, part of it I've heard, which is true, is there's a difference in availability of operating space, which maybe forces Canadian doctors to be more resourceful and learn that this is a very useful technique with good outcomes. But there's also cultural difference. Like I've heard explanations. Well, there's cultural differences between the expectations of Canadian and American patients in compliance with positioning. I've heard you know, the, the practical argument that reimbursement and following these patients in large retina practices in the U.S. can be tricky if the practices are spread over a large geographic area. I've heard as vitrectomy has become more extent, more quick and faster and with better instrumentation, there's simple the pragmatic effect that vitrectomy may reimburse better. And if it offers improved outcomes, maybe people choose that. I mean, what do you think is the biggest reason that it hasn't caught on as much as it should, given the data that's available? Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, you know, they say that it takes 20 years for randomized data to eventually become uh, adopted. It can take that long. I mean, obviously, with something like Lucentis or, you know, or Ranibizumab, it's different. But, you know, I think this is something that's going to take time. And it has to do a lot with training. For example, you know, how you train really impacts uh, and what your group is doing as a new guy coming into a practice really impacts how you do things. And, and I think so it's going to take almost like a generation to change over time. Now, I think you've brought up some really interesting points regarding, you know, cultural differences and, uh, and reimbursement. In regards to the cultural differences, I, I feel like that's less of an issue. I mean, I feel that the majority of patients, and I've had, you know, patients from all types of, you know, all parts of the world who don't speak English and speak English who, you know, come from five hours away or live next door. Uh, I feel that if the, the physician believes that this is the best procedure for that patient and you speak to them uh, and say that this is what you recommend and you think that you'll have a good outcome or a better outcome if you, if you do this, I feel like most patients will be compliant uh, with what you tell them. You know, obviously there's some exceptions to that, but um, I feel that the cultural thing is different. Now, uh, you know, the, the perception in Canada is that, yes, you know, there's, there is a shortage of OR time. And that's true uh, to some extent, but it's a little bit, um, it's not exactly right. Uh, what, what it is is that it's very hard to get OR time in the first place. So uh, the OR resources are all controlled by the hospital. And basically, there's very few people that are hired. Uh, you know, maybe one or two people in a city are hired every 10 years because um, of the lack of additional resources. But those people who do have OR time generally have you know, sufficient OR time, like whether, you know, most of us are operating, you know, one to two days a week, I would say. And, you know, in our, in our center, we have, you know, every day there's two retina ORs going and, you know, we could, if we didn't do the uh, pneumatic, you know, we could take care of those patients with the mm -hmm. Um and, and to, and if you look outside of Toronto, for example, you know, we look at Ottawa and London uh, in Kingston and Hamilton and all the cities outside, most of them don't do a lot of pneumatics. So, you know, it's not a, a Canada thing. It's a, it's a local thing. Like we in Toronto, we believe in them uh, a lot. But in other parts of Canada where and Ontario, where uh, they came from different training programs, uh, where they didn't do a lot of pneumatics, they actually don't do any. Uh, so it's, I don't think that that's the issue. I think reimbursement is an issue. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've had some interest in looking at the, these cost differences. And, and um, I think that there, uh, you know, it makes sense uh, to look at that in more detail. Like, I don't, I don't know the details of how 
uh, much they get reimbursed. Uh, I, I definitely think that there's a lot of effort and time involved in doing a pneumatic retina pexy, and I think it should be reimbursed appropriately. And in fact, I think that the insurance companies in the U.S. should have an interest in in reimbursing them very well because you're you're probably eight out of ten times you're going to save, uh, you know, for the, the patients that met the inclusion criteria, save a, an operating room procedure. And I think that there's significant benefits. So even if you increase the physician reimbursement uh, to make it uh, appealing for, for doctors to do it, uh, that it could, um, you know, save the whole system a lot of money. And so I think that that needs to be looked at um, to account for that. But I, I can certainly see how if it's not reimbursed well that that could have an impact. And, and so I think that you, you have a soup of things, you know, is, is it the availability of the OR, you know, maybe some cultural differences, maybe some reimbursement and some training. Uh, and, and all of that shapes the bias that we have in each individual center and in each individual state and country. Uh, but, you know, I think that's the reason we need these randomized trials. We need studies that at the end of the day, tell us what is the best for the patient. And I think we all agree that that's what we want in the end. And so how can we, you know, you know looking at the, the reimbursement issues and the access issues, like how can we solve those problems, uh, but yet, you know, keep striving to just offer what is best for the patient. And I think that, you know, for example, doing a pneumatic in a patient who has multiple breaks all over the place, you know, may not make sense in South Florida, but, you know, maybe a patient who has a 12 o'clock break in a superior RD, you know, regardless of the, the, the reimbursement or the cultural differences, you know, you can make that pneumatic work. And, and uh, I think having a discussion with the insurance companies about this fact, about how they'll save uh, or resources could, you know, potentially uh, you know, solve that, that problem. Rajiv, you've been great. Thanks so much uh, for your time. You've been very generous. Um, any questions you want to throw back at me? You know, again, speaking as a Canadian retinal surgeon, to U.S. surgeon, anything else you want to bring up about pneumatics, kind of closing thoughts before we, uh, we break? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be really uh, keen to know, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm coming to the Vit Buckle Society uh, later in, in a month or two, so it's going to sure. be great to meet you and, uh, and to talk. In, in, but I'd be interested to know, like, let's say, you know, when you guys look at this data and you say, okay, uh, this is something that, you know, might definitely has a, a place. Like, I, I don't think as a retinal surgeon now, uh, you can say that I don't do pneumatics, like, or that it's not, like, there's clearly some patients where it might be better. So it, if you take that into your environment, like uh, at Baskin Palmer, where you don't do a lot of them, and um, where, you know, the training is more vitrectomy or vit buckle, um, how, how do, what do you think are the barriers and how would you go about um, making a change where, you know, where for that small population of, you know, or the population of patients where they're ideal candidates, how would you introduce it into the, into the training program? And, and, that's such a great question. I, I think that it's interesting because I, I, um, I'll tell you, we, we do pneumatics here at Baskin Palmer, but I think we probably do them less than other places in the United States. And I do think that in this case, a lot of it is OR availability. Um, we're very fortunate where we can kind of just take anything to surgery at any point. And so sometimes it's it becomes like a self-feeding thing where if you don't do pneumatics, then the fellows aren't doing as many and the, the equipment's not as readily available and you don't have the cryo exactly where you, I mean, these are barriers that shouldn't stop, you know, pneumatics from happening, but I've seen them here in other places that or availability and access to kind of equipment to make the pneumatic feasible, especially if you're doing cryo instead of laser or gas, for example, not having gas, 
those are actual barriers that will change whether or not you do a pneumatic, um, even though they probably shouldn't. And I think that what I've tried to do since I trained at Wills, and we did more pneumatics at Wills than the fellows generally did here before I came back, is at least bring, I think the most important thing is to think about it, right? Is you need to think about it when you're doing your surgical decision making. Just always think about all the available options from, you know, I always talk to medical students, there's five different options really you have for regmatized detachment. And that ranges from observation to laser barricade to a pneumatic, to a buckle, to doing a vitrectomy without a buckle. And those are all different options for various scenarios. And sometimes the answer is very obvious. You're not going to observe a macula involving detachment that's new. But sometimes you just have to take a step back and be like, well, maybe a pneumatic isn't a bad idea. So what, for me, at least, this is a simple and stupid answer. But I just try to ask them those questions, even in cases maybe we end up deciding not to do a pneumatic. I just say, well, do you think this person is a good pneumatic candidate? And if so, why not? Um, so that there's a little bit of a burden of proof there to to continue to draw because I think people are drawing retina drawings less than they did in the past because of EMR and because we're taking so many patients for vitrectomy. It's not near maybe quote unquote as important, but it's super important if you're deciding to do a pneumatic what the pathology looks like and where the breaks are. And so I think just getting people to think about it and then. You know, I think actually the fellows are generally pretty receptive to this, even if they're uncomfortable. We're always uncomfortable doing things we haven't done before. They kind of, they want to do it because they want to be versatile and they know the data that's out there. I think you just need to, to kind of walk them through the steps, make them feel confident about the steps and kind of minimize it in a sense saying, look, this is no different than doing an anterior chamber tap and an intravitreal injection with some laser. Um, or with you know cryo, which you've done before in buckles. You just need to break it down to those components and then it becomes much more approachable and a little less intimidating. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about that in more detail. Thank you. Perfect. Rajiv, I look forward to seeing you in Miami. Thanks again for being super, super generous. We're way over time. Um, have a wonderful rest of your winter, and uh, we'll see you down here in sunny Miami in a, a month or so. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. Now we have 215 episodes all on our website, sorted by category. They're a great archive to go back and listen about topics and learn about things that um, maybe you heard about it once and you're like, oh, I want to refresh it and hear about it again. Remember that you can get updates on new episodes when they come out by subscribing to our mailing list. That link is on the website. You can also contact us directly by clicking on the link on the website or emailing us directly at retinapodcast.gmail.com. We're on Twitter, on Facebook, at Retina Podcast is the Twitter handle. And we appreciate people who subscribe in the Apple and Android store and leave reviews, positive feedback, constructive feedback, things that we can do to get better and continue providing things that are useful are very helpful as we move forward in the future. Many thanks to Dr. Rajit Mooney for joining me for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Lee Kai, Dr. Andal Chang, and Dr. Mike Benacasa for providing the production and social media for this episode. And listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you publish, the conversations you inspire here each week and the patient care you provide on a daily basis. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. This is straight from the cutter's mouth.